Ladies, gentlemen, or what have you, I'm Orion Lavelle. And I'm Travis Mattingly. And you're listening to Tooth and Nail, a monstrous podcast, where today we will continue our discussion of the monster manual thingy uh, in order to talk about fish dongles. That's right. <laughs> we're, you know, we're talking about the abolith, ladies, gentlemen, or what uh, have I you. I thought we're we were covering about. fish sticks, and I was going to tell you that doesn't start with an A. No, and it doesn't end well either, in my experience. <laughs> No, we're talking about the Abolith, which is an, our first aberration, the first aberration in the Monster Manual. And aberrations, I think, you know, they follow pretty um, regular themes. I think once, it, it kind of has uh, the cadence of the undead problem, where once you've seen one ghost that longs to fulfill its past wishes, you've seen them all. Abolith's yeah. kind of have a similar thing, where like, once you've seen one all-knowing creature bent on world domination, you've seen them all. But um, I think on the whole, and that, that might just be because, you know, I love me some Lovecraft, but I think aberrations are my favorite category of monster in D&D. Well, for sure, because there's <laughs> there's only so many, um, like the, speaking on the undead problem, there's only so many combinations of undead parts you can put on a thing. Yeah. Uh, with aberrations, the sky is your limit. <laughs> there's any yeah. combination of tentacles, too many eyes, not enough eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I can see I can see tentacles and too many eyes getting like you. There's too much of that at the buffet, but for me, as somebody who is, and we'll probably talk about this more as we continue, but I've always been a big uh, wimp when it comes down to things what lurk in the ocean parts. It ain't your strength. No, yeah, it's definitely I've got fears in me, and I think that's why I the aber- aberrations in dr- general persist as a creature I like quite a lot because I have that those fears i think it's a a monster type that has kind of stuck with us for this many decades because everybody has at least a little bit of a primal hatred of slimy tentacled unknown things yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) it hits the trifecta it's gross it feel it looks like it feels gross we can't fully understand what it is it got all the things sometimes it has too many teeth yeah just so many teeth I hate it when people have 39 teeth. It really weird me out. <laughs> but can you imagine if somebody opened their mouths and it was either A, an eyeball, or B, <laughs> one giant tooth? I would cover that for this show. Those are aberrations. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, And I think, you know, <laughs> yeah, I think there is kind of an issue with D&D in how it, its categorization. And, and this is a problem with anything that categorizes anything, right? But I think, like, the idea is that an aberration is just a, a bizarre kind of creature that, that doesn't traditionally make sense in your brain. So, like, yeah. you have monstrosities, which are kind of figures of myths, and then you have aberrations, which are like, fucking, I don't know what this is. Yeah, almost almost 90, mm, 85% of the time, aberrations have, like, the same origin story. They're from the far realm. yeah. Wherever, uh, wherever that may be. But occasionally they're created, which you know, that feels like monstrosity, but monstrosity has like a different meaning in D&D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is get feel free to get weird with your aberrations if you ever venture into monster crafting. Yeah, don't don't feel confined to the Cthulhu-verse. Yeah, mo- aberrations would turn over in their graves if they knew that somebody was feeling <laughs> confined about how to represent them. And trust me, when you're a massive tentacles, you roll over really quickly. Let's move on.
we 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 did a fuck up once upon a time because yeah. uh a- a- aeons ago when the earth was new we did an episode on mind flayers kind of writ large and all of their the mind flayer subsidiaries and abolis as a creature kind of suffer in comparison to mind flayers which are like their more popular cousins and we'll we'll find that there are a lot of similarities between the two creatures as we continue onward. So, similarly to the Mind Flayer, the Abolith is a creature, an aberration that thrives on dominance. They, in the past, at the beginning, when the world was new, they used their psychic abilities to enslave the primordial mortals until the gods arrived and destroyed this Abolithian empire that they created. And like Elder Brains, which are the, the, like, the big, the big brother to Mind Flayers, they perfectly preserved the memory of that defeat and have been plotting their revenge against, you know, across the aeons ever since. And so again, it is one of those things where like, who can truly say why mind flayers are more popular than aboliths? But, you know, there I can imagine a universe where we're doing nail and tooth and we're talking about how, <laughs> man, mind flayers are just the shitty versions of aboliths. It's, it's weird too, because aboliths, you would think via their... Increased size, they're uh, generally more, I don't want to say accessibility, but sort of accessibility. Like yeah, they, well, they could be dropped into pretty much anywhere. Yeah, there's a there's less of a removal, right? An abolith is a Lovecraftian thing, whereas a mind flare is kind of drawn from the continuum later on. So, like, you'd think that the thing that is more directly related to the source of inspiration would be more popular, but not the case. Oh, well, I like them. I think Yeah, I like them great. too. I love me an Abolith. <laughs> uh, and like, truth be told, like I said at the beginning, your mileage may vary on how much you like an aberration after the 50th, you know, fish creature trying to take over humanity thing. I, I have yet to get tired of it, so I'm still fine with Aboliths. Yeah, I guess that is something that, at least in... Honestly, I don't know about their lore much before 5th edition, but in 5th edition, they kind of suffer the generic, let's call it the generic disease. I don't know a better word for it. <laughs> sure, we'll call it that for now. Disorder, I guess, where they were functionally designed as just kind of Cthulhu-adjacent yeah. monsters. They aren't, their goals are almost too simple yeah, they are defined almost too much by their, I don't know, single-minded purpose. Yeah, yeah, well, there's just not a whole lot to their lore, yeah. really. And what's there, you know, is obviated entirely by Mind Flayers. So, yes, yeah, so this is pretty much like a poor man's Cthulhu. Which is a shame. I yeah. think it had it had potential. The deadbeat Cthulhu. The uh, <laughs> Abolists are aquatic creatures. They set up their, auto- their autocracies in oceans, lakes, and in the elemental plane of water. Again, as somebody who is horrified of distressing things lurking at the bottoms of pits of water, uh, that works for me. It's it's funny because thinking about it, like after we've talked about the plane of air in the Aarakocra episode, thinking about now the plane of water as more of an Atlantis. Yeah. Uh, it makes Aboliths kind of living in Atlantis a little funnier to me because yeah, I imagine it's, it's just like the Little Mermaid, but then also yeah. there's a giant Cthulhu monster that lives among them. It's so weird. Like, I wish... I I would never read this book, but I kind of want <laughs> Wizards of the Coast to put out an Elemental Planes book, just so I don't also have that image of like do 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 do. Oh, and then... like like a straight like three hundred pages of lore about the planes and like how they are not just 
Yeah, how it's not boring. just, you know, dolphins <laughs> doing high fives and flippies. <laughs> well, some of it can be that. Yeah, yeah, but, like, not just that. <laughs> of course. So, again, like Mind Flayers, abolists are known for consuming the knowledge and experiences of their prey when they eat them. They can read minds like Mind Flayers, and they use the intelligence to their advantage like Mind Flayers, promising desired rewards in exchange for servitude. This is a little bit different because mind flayers are way too arrogant to ever promise anything to something they would deem lesser, like a person. So I, I like this a little bit more. I, you know, once upon a time, I read, when I was a young lad, I read a book called Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. In it, the dystopian empire was very, like, uh, it, 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 and it's, like, stuck with me ever since is this idea, like, the the dystopian empire, like the perfect dystopia to my mind, is the one that utilizes the carrot rather than the stick. Mm-hmm. And whenever I see a creature do that, I I don't know, I lean positively toward it. So yeah. the fact that the abolith does, you know, kind of bait and switch ya, I think is <laughs> cooler than the mind flayer's just straight, you know, dominant psychic attack. So when an abolith has a layer set up, and abolists do get layers. They're like they're that kind of boss creature where they're supposed to be the kind of creature you build an entire dungeon around. Their powers increase, and the abolith can inject illusions into the minds of other creatures, often creating the illusion of the promised reward, which again is a, a nicer, I think, more uh, understandable version of the mind flayer. It's, Little side note. Yes, I was gonna say it's interesting um, that they can so specifically inject illusions into the mind and make them almost real to the person. Just mm. like, I'll give you this if you submit, and then they submit, and in a sense, they weren't lying. Yeah, and that's going to lead into a kind of a neat little mechanical quirk that I, 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 I don't know if it actually plays out, but in theory, I think is cool. As a side note, dead abolists, their spirits return to the elemental plane of water where they regenerate. We see that a lot in Devil's... Uh, or at least in Oblivion in Skyrim and the Elder Scrolls. Well, it does happen uh, to certain monsters in D&D. Like, does it? Yeah, there's like the uh, Rakshasa and yes. I believe also Pit Fiends, but I could be wrong about Pit Fiends. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not smart enough. I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out when we cover them. Yeah, exactly. Stay tuned. Yeah, until then, hang out with us, play some Oblivion. <laughs> do, 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 you know. Yeah. In an abolist layer, they have regional effects. You know, there there's a certain kind of category of creature that is so powerful that it infects the terrain in which it resides, which I typically like. Uh, so regional effects, I think, are really cool. They're a guide to how to describe the layer of the creature. As the DM, this is like the, the monster manual giving you little notes as to how to portray the dungeon that you put the monster in. And it also lets you know how the dungeon progresses over time. So, you know, you have your 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 Egyptian-style pyramid, and then as you go from Earth to, you know, the underground, it by degrees turns into a slimy, disgusting mess, and that's how your dungeon has arc, has like a character arc. Yeah, and there's various different kinds of layer, or layer and regional effects where... It could either be uh, magical, magically changed or naturally changed based on the monster or mm. anything really cool. And I think personally, I like stuff like the Abolith where it's not necessarily magically changed. It's literally like an infection. Yeah, it's just fouled. And yeah. we'll get into that right now. So firstly, underground surfaces within a mile of the Abolith 
are slimy, wet, and difficult terrain. I like the slimy, wet part. The difficult terrain thing feels pretty harsh because difficult terrain is not, to me, a very interesting mechanic. It just slows you down. It doesn't really, unless you're building an encounter around your characters having less mobility, it just makes your combat longer, which isn't really terribly meaningfully fun. Especially because regional effects can have such a large radius. Yeah, like, absolutely. This is a mile, uh, so the entire yeah. mile of this dungeon, you're walking slower. Yeah, half speed for an entire mile because I hate fun. Like, yes, yes. It, it, it does seem rough. Yeah, and this is the other thing where the the Abolith is a water creature. It is, a, you know, it is a, uh, I almost said creature of water. Never mind. <laughs> I'm leaving. Goodbye. <laughs> it's just me now. <laughs> no, uh, so especially since this is a creature of water, you get the you get the idea that you're supposed to make your Abolith dungeon partially underwater, and underwater exploration and combat isn't fun either because it's also very slow and awkward. So you're given the choice, uh, as part of this regional effect, you're given the choice between either slow, awkward land stuff or slow, awkward underwater stuff. It almost incentivizes a DM to either scrap it or it forces a DM to try to give players benefits to get around it. Like yes. magic items that uh, uninhibit your movement underwater or something like that. Yeah. Just, it, to it, give, it, just to give you an inch in a mile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, at the same time, it's also forcing the DM to create encounters based around this awkwardness, which makes the DM's life a bit harder to my mind. Yeah, because it practically, I, I, it definitely doesn't double the challenge of any fight, but it increases it exponentially. Yeah, it's fiddly, uh, and I don't much like it, and I would probably throw it out and not tell anybody if I was running a dungeon like this. Second regional effect, w this is a lot more interesting, or at least a lot more fun. Water sources are supernaturally fouled, causing enemies of the Abolith to throw it up if they drink it. That's a pretty good touch. Um, oh, yeah. It doesn't really have much of a mechanical benefit, but if you're running, like, a survival campaign, then I can see this being a good way to A, frustrate, or at least, you know, challenge your players, and B, you know, we, and we talked about this, uh, full disclosure, we, this is the second time we've recorded this, uh, we talked about this before as whether or not we, um, we signal the fouling of the water, because this can be yeah. a, kind of a fun little gotcha. If yeah, I was going to say, it's by just thinking about it like originally, it's like, oh, okay, the water gets all murky and kind of gross looking. But to me, mm. it's almost fun, funnier and more fun to just have it be normal looking. Like maybe it's a little darker, yeah. but just it looks normal. And that way, anybody who is like, we stop in the spring and we have a bath, they just start. Yeah. <laughs> And then it becomes a puke orgy. Another use for this is actually maybe an invent an adventure hook. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely, you know, the village a mile away doesn't have water anymore. Please go help us. Pretty good. <laughs> or, like, even just, we have all of this water, but every time we drink it, we just, <laughs> we can't, the whole village is filled with vomits. <laughs> they, they come into a town, they visit, everything seems totally normal, they stop it at the bar, and everybody- And then it in turns the... into a Family Guy sketch. Yeah, and then it turns into a Family Guy sketch. It's like, hi, do you have anything to drink here? Well. <laughs> no, so yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think you hit it. I think, uh, I think that is supposed to be a sort of adventure hook more than anything else. 
uh, because typically it won't have a mechanical benefit. I guess the more actual natural way it would go is you go to a town and you realize that the water is corrupted and then you start to head underground and once you head underground you realize that underground is a slimy wet hell pit. Woohoo! Yay! Everyone's favorite adventure, the slimy wet hell pit. Yeah. So as a third regional effect, the Ableth can spend an action to create an illusory version of itself within a mile appearing at any location the Abolith has seen before or any location a creature charmed by the Abolith can see, and we'll get into Abolith charms later on. This, so the image lasts on the Abolith's concentration. It looks and sounds and moves like the Abolith, although it is physically intangible. The Abolith can sense, speak, and use telepathy from the image's position, and if it takes damage, it disappears. So this regional effect to my mind, depends on having one of those charmed creatures in the area. And this, to me, is a... And we'll find that a lot of bosses have various ways of doing this, but this reads to me as the way to introduce your Abolith at the beginning of the dungeon. Like, if you want a nice villainous monologue at the beginning without putting your villain in harm, because as we discussed in the last episode, whenever you put your villain in front of the players, they're going to kill it. So this is a, a good, safe way to introduce your villain at the beginning to you know, set up that Super Metroid Dark Souls style, you see the boss and then you kill it later on kind of callback thing. Yeah, and it's super cool that it just kind of... Because they don't really... It's not The Abolith isn't in itself a spellcaster, so it's cool that they give it kind of a weaker version of the spell Project Image because, as I've told you a number of times, Project Image is one of my favorite spells for a villain to have for that exact reason. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's supposed to invoke a sort of... Uh, like, like, well, like, so, so mind flares get the psychic attack kind of thing. I think this is supposed to be a similar kind of psionic wave kind of deal. Or like, um, like, uh, you could, I can see this also playing very well into like an insanity effect sort of thing. Like the, it's projecting the madness illusion into their minds that it is there. Yeah, that's kind of what I think that's. And so we'll get to that in, in, in one second. Like there's a, uh, there, we'll get to layer. Yeah, oh, fuck it. We'll go, we'll do it now. So that's regional effects. Yeah. Next thing the, that a lot of these high-tier boss creatures have, especially when they have their own layer, is layer actions, which are sort of special, like, extra gravy that they can put on their mashed potatoes. Uh, I, the, this, the, the metaphor has kind of gotten away from me, but you understand. <laughs> I, now I'm thinking about mashed potatoes too much. I can't. Oh, all right. Sorry. <laughs> So, yes. So, they get layer actions, which are extra things they can do in their layer. The, this first one that Abolith can do, they can cast Phantasmal Force on any number of creatures that the Abolith can see within 60 feet of it. And I think that this is kind of what I was getting at as an expression of uh, uh, strange psychedelic. You know, when you're playing any Cthulhu game and your, your character has some sort of hallucination as a result of their sanity being low, I think this is an expression, like a D&D expression of that, because Phantasmal Force just changes, you know, it creates a, an illusion around you. I hadn't even considered that. That is very... Yeah, I yeah. like that. I like that very much. Yeah, so so there's that way to look at it. There's also the other way that fits in with the, the lore of the Abolith, which is, I think this is the mechanical expression of the Abolith presenting the, the, the illusion of the reward for servitude, right? Hmm. So, so when an abolith keeps concentration on this, it can't take other layer actions. This is kind of an interesting little tidbit to this thing where saves against the spell are immune to the effects of the spell for 24 hours, which is really common. 
Although, and this is a lot rarer, creatures can choose to be affected by the illusion if they want to, which, to, to me, I, again, this probably doesn't come to anything in actual play, but I like this as the idea of uh, kind of like a free will choosing to live inside the matrix kind of thing that I find really cool for role-playing, role where the idea is the eldritch creature, the Aboleth, is presenting you with your deepest desire, and you're electing to remain, you know, under, you're electing to remain in the dream world because you're getting an illusion of the thing you want, even if it's not really the thing you want. Yeah, the the strongest expression of this, if you are a crazy DM and your characters have just the perfect backstory for it, is dangling a lawful good or neutral good paladin's dead wife in front of them. Oh yeah, dead wives, dead family members, all that. And it, it's kind of like a role-playing test for the players if you're that kind of group where, oh, you know... Are you, as a character, going to do this thing that potentially screws over your party for the purpose of your character's ideal or bond or whatever? Potential lifelong happiness. Yeah. Or like Whether it's lifelong. real or not. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I think that's kind of cool from a role-playing perspective. Uh, I recognize that a lot of parties won't choose to engage with it in that way. And even then, like, the idea... Yeah, I, I realize that in actual play it doesn't really come out that well because... Nobody's going to, or it's very rare that somebody is going to choose to go under in that way, because that's well, not really what mechanically D&D is about. I was about to say, actually, it's interesting that that's even a possibility, because there, it's been noted like a million times that there is so much about D&D, and even 5th edition, which some people consider to be the most roleplay heavy edition of it, there's so much about it that does not lend itself at all to role-playing. Yeah. Uh, like, there's rarely ever will you look at a monster stat block and see something that allows for role-play possibilities outside of role-playing a combat effect. Yeah, yeah. D&D is designed in two separate spheres. You have your combat, and then you have your everything else. And, yeah. uh, yeah. It, it's, well, that it's just a vestige of D&D being what it is, which is a long kind of... Uh, it, it, it having its roots in war games more than anything yeah. else. People not really caring about your whatever your your knight because it's just supposed to win you the fight and not supposed to have feelings. Well, yeah, which is what I mean. Like that's why I think it's really cool that this has that. And I don't. I'd I'd like to see more of that throughout the monster manual. Yeah, I I would like to see it more heavily leaned into with the kind of mutual understanding that you can go for it if you want to or if you don't want to as the DM if that fits your group or not. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and again, like, how this actually shakes out in a fight is you make uh, a saving throw against something. The DM's probably not going to tell you the effects of the thing you're saving against. So there's no real reason in the moment for you to choose to be affected by anything. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I think with this one in, in like, just like the this specific instance, I might actually... Like, let them know as the, yeah as they're making the saving throw tell them what they're seeing yeah yeah and, and that's then, your prerogative and i think i i think that's fair because that does lend itself to this kind of neat role-playing situation yeah yeah another layer action that the abuleth has and and this kind of suggests the environment in which you fight it is that pools of water within 90 feet of the abuleth become a riptide sort of thing and pull creatures within 20 feet of the pool failing uh, a low for its CR, and we'll get into that in a second, a kind of low 14 strength save. It pulls the character 20 feet into the water and knocks them prone. 
The Abolith can't use this action twice in the row. This is a really good way to destabilize the... So, like, this is... In terms of combat value, this is a good way to destabilize the ranks of the players, where I can imagine an Abolith doing this to, for example, a Cleric or a Healer at a really inopportune time and really screwing over mm. the party. Like, oh, no, the fighter's down. I gotta go rush over to get him. Abolith uses the Lair action to drag the Cleric into the pool of water and keeping them from healing the the Paladin or the fighter or whatever they need healing. Yeah, which is a very stressful situation. Yeah. And I think it's perfect because uh, the Abolith kind of needs stuff like that. Yeah. Any number of creatures within water in 90 feet of the Abolith must also succeed on an OK 14 wisdom save or take 7 psychic damage. This is another layer action of the Abolith. Uh, this is another layer action that the Abolith can't use twice in a row. So the idea is that the Abolith is pulling creatures into the water not only to get them trapped and separated from the rest of the party, but also to kick on a little bit of extra damage afterwards to everybody struggling to get out of the water because, again, you know, water is going to be difficult terrain, so it's going to take them longer to get out, and this is throwing on some extra psychic damage in in the interim. So, so yes. So the, the idea, and this is what I came to when I was through reading the Abolith uh, stat block, I, I think the idea is, or I can see the way, so you as the DM, and we talked about this a little bit last episode, you as the DM have a lot more power over the difficulty of the encounter than what the CR suggests, right? So, mm-hmm. and, and this can be very minute and subtle in ways that we don't often see. So for a fight like this, I can see the difficulty of the fight changing drastically simply by changing the amount of water in the environment, right? Oh, for sure, yeah. So, like, the location, and this can go not only with the amount of water in the area, but also the location of each pool of water being, you know, with with more separate and larger pools of water being more difficult because the, the Abolith can drag players farther away from each other. On the other end, you can make the pools of water smaller and closer set, to have, you know, the the to give the Abolith less ability to control the party. Yeah, the the perfect nightmare zone kind of like arena of fighting an Abolith in my mind is almost like a Legend of Zelda encounter where there is an exactly 20 foot in diameter circle platform of stone. Yeah. And just a pool of water surrounding it yeah, in a circle. It's Morpheon or whatever the fuck from uh, Ocarina of Time. <laughs> Yeah, so, like, the Abolith is diving into the water, going underneath the platforms, coming up in a spot they don't know. Yeah. And in the meantime, while it's hiding underneath the platform, it's using its layer actions to pull things into the water. Yeah. And, you know, this can lend itself again to a, a tug-of-war kind of encounter, where the Abolith is where you both are vi- vying for control within for water in the area. So, like, yeah. I can imagine a, I don't know, we'll call it, like, uh... You're fighting an Abolith in the middle of a sewer system, and there are valves all over that control the water level in the room. And so oh, you're fighting off the Abolith and at the same time trying to control the water such that there's less water in the room while the Abolith is fighting you off as well and maybe has mine slaves in the area to turn the water back on and you guys are tug-of-warring in that way. Well, that'd be pretty good, right? Like for a city, you know, the city calls you in because there's water, ba- their water is bad. You go in and think, oh, it's probably goblins or something. Over the course of whatever, you're you're fighting goblins, and then slowly by degrees, the wa- the the sewers are getting slimier and grosser, and 
by the end of it, you realize, oh shit, it's a Cthulhu monster. There's, it's got mine slaves at the water plant. Yeah, I think I don't know. I, there you go. We we wrote your we wrote your you, we <laughs> yeah, wrote boom. your adventure for adventure you. Adventure one. Yeah. Ah, uh, that doesn't work, and we'll get into that in one second. But first, we should talk about our boys over at nerdsmith.com. Yeah. I say this hesitantly because this is the first time we've ever done this. Because it's the first time it's I've true. ever think to I've ever thought to do this. Uh <laughs> I you know they're they're real cool. We'll play you we'll play you some of them promos right now, and then a music sting probably. So enjoy the cool stylings of Kevin McLeod along with. Uh, some people. (laughs) (laughs) In a world that's forgotten the meaning of hero. We're not actually helping that much. It's like a cardboard box. It's all old and kind of ratty. Um, I believe there might be some mistake. I said proctor equipment. Yeah, no, this this is it. Bronze badge, lost and found. Here you go. Mm. (laughs) And the arrow didn't hit bone, so you can reuse it. Reuse the bone? We're looking for a dragon named the Scottish Play. There's only so much that editing can do. <laughs> Is there someone else we can talk to? Nobody quite as cheerful as Robin. You mean they get worse? And more privileged, yes. Stone Coast Railway, Cal! <laughs> Come to Stone Coast Railway! Come on, Cal! He seemed excited by the prospect. He was, and then he found out that it devalues the painting, and that kind of broke his heart a little bit. His little heart a little bit. Yeah, how's that feel? Take that. Bad. <laughs> Talk was that? Oh, no. Was there, was there a joke was, in there, yeah. Kyle? Did no, you wanna, you no wanna, fine. Do you want to take another swing at that one? Shenanigans, an actual play D&D podcast. Available on nerdsmith.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Man, we should really come up with a smoother way to do that. And we're back. (laughs) (laughs) We sure are, Cam. (laughs) So let's get into the stat block of the Aboleth. Uh, Let's. Yes, let's get into the proper stat block. This has all been preliminary layer actions and uh, environmental effects and that sort of thing. This is the, I don't want to do it because of my recording setup, but imagine I slam my fist on the table and say, let's get into the real shit. Yeah, by God. <laughs> so the Abolith has a CR of 10. Its general power level is 10, uh, with a slightly higher AC for its CR of 17 and a fairly reduced HP of 135. So the idea is, you know, it's slightly, it's got tougher skin, but when you get under the skin, it's squishier. Yeah. I... Uh, we'll talk about this another... Well, fuck it. No, because I'll probably bring it up. Uh, I don't know. I'll cut all this out. It doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Yeah, hit me right now, Travis, outside of recording, what you are thinking about talking about. I was going to complain about how I think it's better to have a lower AC and higher HP because nobody likes missing, but... But also nobody likes fights that go on for too long, so... Yeah, Meh. but I'd rather roll more damage dice than miss. That's fair. That's a lot fair. That's very fair. Uh, that's just... I don't know. Maybe that's my 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 bloodlust as a monster. I think the only time somebody should have an, a very high AC is if A, it's a dragon or yeah. B, it's somebody wearing plate armor. Yeah, and I guess we can talk about this a little. I don't really understand why an abolith, which is a squishy fish thing, has tough skin at all. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. It doesn't... Like, if maybe if they had, like, depicted it as a scaled fish creature, 
maybe I'd be like, oh, the scales are hardened. But no, it's just a... Yeah, and maybe we can talk a little bit now, now that we've gotten into it, about its actual artistic design. Yeah, uh, uh, my, my favorite way of looking at it is uh, imagine the head of a mutated catfish with three eyes and large circular mouth of teeth. Yeah. Which slides back into a squid and yeah. one of the tentacles is also a fin. Yes, it's like a multi-leech with yeah, eyes. The ultra-leech. Yeah, the mega-leech. Um, I Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, it's wormy. It's significantly good. I prefer my aberrations because, to my mind, you know, an aberration should dominantly, and this is perhaps paying too much homage to Lovecraft, uh, to my mind, an aberration should lean in terms of its artistic design as heavily into weird, unknown, my brain falls off of it as much as possible. So yeah. I think the Ablith is almost too easy to read. I prefer yeah. I prefer my aberrations a little bit more messy looking. This is very much uh, designed as a plane of water monstrosity as opposed to a yeah. an unknown horror from the far Yeah, realm. and I think that's exactly what it is, is I think this is more of a plane of water entity than a kind of unknowable creature from the stars. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just one more reason to hate the planes, Orion. <laughs> Justified your hate every day. Hashtag fuck the planes. <laughs> Just wait, eventually we'll get to the plane of fire, and that'll be the one plane that I know stuff about for real, and then I'll school you on that. Yeah, plane of fire is cool for exactly the reason I talked about in the Eric Cochran episode. The plane of fire has, like, an interesting kind of government system. Yeah, but we'll get there when we get there. There's there's a creature on the way in this monster manual very soon. Yeah, very we soon. We'll talk get there about in a second. Uh, so the Abolith has a 40, uh, 10 walking speed, so a slow walking speed of 10, a 40, a higher swim speed of 40, which is another reason to put this guy in water, and another way that you can make the encounter easier by reducing the amount of water in the environment. You said a 10-foot walking speed, and my brain immediately, while looking at this picture, imagined it using the two smallest yeah, tentacles as like, feet. Wiggle on up. Hey, guys. No, as, as like, yeah, as like feet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it just kind of walks like a regular person with these two tentacles. And the rest of them just kind of dragging behind. They'll never know. <laughs> hey, what are you doing in my cave? <laughs> so the Ablith, it gets bonuses to its intelligence, constitution, and wisdom saves. So this creature is defensively reinforced and I think lends itself to, you mentioned it earlier, as the a good encounter with the Ablith being one where it kind of darts in from pool to pool going underneath the character's feet. I think oh, yeah. this is uh, another... Uh, another way to reinforce playing the Abolith as a slippery motherfucker because it is so defensively inclined. I think part uh, I I I think that that is kind of what they're going for. Even though I'm frustrated as a player by missing too much, I think what they're going yeah. for with the the defensive focus is having the Abolith feel like it's constantly slipping out of your grasp, getting from pool to pool or location of water to location of water. I had thought of a way to change this around a little bit, which we can get to later if you want. Uh, but just to make sure that the armor class is lower, but it still has like a higher defense option it can take. Yeah, tell me. Uh, I think that I would like it if the AC was lower, probably 15, maybe 14 even. Mm. Um, but it has it would have a reaction where when it takes damage, it can choose to uh, 
A, you could either give it uncanny dodge, which would be dumb, mm. or B, it can use half its movement to dip back into the water if it takes damage. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I think you might be right. I think maybe a lower AC and then having a, a feat that makes it harder to get a hold of or like a, a better way to outmaneuver you, I think that would work a little bit better. And then it would yeah. play off of that fear of like, oh shit, I'm in a shark tank with a whole bunch of sharks. I am hopelessly unequipped to fight off these sharks and these sharks are born to be in this environment. Yeah, because then it's like the archer can still hit it the melee fighter can still hit it, but then it can run away. Yeah. But it is still horrifically, terribly, cripplingly weak to mages. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think that's fair. You know, one good lightning bolt. Yeah. Yeah. So the Abolith, it has 120 dark vision range and a huge passive perception of 20. Uh, it is amphibious. It can go outside of water. It's really, it's a lot worse on water. But again, this allows for the DM-selected difficulty thing where you can make the fight easier by providing less water. It doesn't just flat out exclude you from using a pure land fight with a, a an abolith at all. Uh, I was thinking, is there a way in D&D to freeze masses of water? Because uh, I know there's a spell, it's like Snowstorm or something, where it makes 20 feet frozen difficult terrain, and I would I would say that works on water. Yeah. I mean, like, if... uh. If a player came at me with, like, an ice thing, like a cone of cold, like a decently sized cold spell, and tried yeah. to freeze water, I I might allow it. I might see where it goes. Right. I just know that that one freezes the ground, so it seems like it would, but yeah, maybe not. Mm. Uh, I was just trying to think of ways to uh, work this encounter, this theoretical encounter we have going. Yeah. So, here's a, a fun little thing. The Abolith, it has a trait called Mucus Cloud, and what happens is, while the Abolith is underwater, the Abolith is surrounded by a transformative mucus, which uh, <laughs> has got to be like a reference to how Aboliths procreate, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So anything that touches or melee attacks the Abolith within five feet of it makes a 14 con save or becomes diseased for 1d4 hours. The diseased creature can breathe only underwater. So, uh, again, this feels like uh, the... The designers hinting at how aboliths make more aboliths and that you know by degrees a person is transformed into one yeah and um we've discussed this before about the abolith mucus cloud it doesn't specifically say but i like to think that it's uh cumulative it's yeah. additive yeah so if you just keep hitting it with melee attacks and you just keep failing your constitution saving throws you might be a fishman for a while. I, I cannot imagine <laughs> the DM who wants to count all those hours, though. Hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't met me, buddy. So, again, underwater combat in D&D is not super fun for me, but I think the idea is that if you're fighting an abolith within melee range anyway, you're probably already underwater. So it's just another means of forcing the character to be stuck in the abolith territory. Yeah. Probing telepathy is another trait by the abolith. If a creature communicates, so the wording on this is a little bit awkward. If a creature engages in any telepathic communication whatsoever with the Abolith, the Abolith learns the creature's greatest desires if the Abolith can see the creature. And so the way that the Monster Manual presents it, it's just if a creature communicates telepathically with the Abolith, kind of suggesting like if a creature has telepathy and engages in conversation with the Abolith, it gets this effect. I think what it means is that if there's any telepathic contact whatsoever, the Abolith then learns the creature's desires. And this is, to me, the the setup for the Phantasmal Forces punchline, right? So this is how the 
Abilith mechanically learns the desires of the creatures in order to provide an illusion of it with Phantasma Force in its layer actions. Absolutely. Yeah. Getting on to the kind of primary attacks of the Abilith, the Abilith can make three tentacle attacks. They are not very interesting. They do middling damage each. The real surprise is that on a failed 14 con save, the creature again gets another disease. And this is real similar. <laughs> yeah, if you got it again, boy. So this is similar to the egg disease in Dark Souls in that the disease shows no effect for one minute. So you, you get it, you don't know you have it. It also leads to this really fun thing. One of my favorite things about the metagame in D&D, where what happens is the player rolls a con save, you know, it, it gets hit by a tentacle, it rolls a con save, it fails miserably, you know, it rolls a one, it, the, the player knows they failed, and then the DM just goes, okay, and moves on with the fight. And then the player, <laughs> the player has to sit with that for ages. What it's feels so like a nightmare eternity, yeah. <laughs> it's the best part about being a DM is yeah. having them roll and then just, all right. Okay, cool. The Abolith's <laughs> going to move here. Uh, <laughs> it's so great. Yeah. So, yes. So after a minute of no effects, the diseased creature skin, you get to lay this on them. The diseased creature skin <laughs> becomes translucent and slimy and they can't regain hit points unless they're underwater. Moreover, when a creature is outside a body of water, it takes six acid damage every 10 minutes. This can be another way of keeping your characters underwater, assuming, you know, the minute goes up before the fight is over. Realistically, though, this is this feels like an afterward surprise. Oh, yeah. Like a whoops. And then, you know, <laughs> it potentially, be, yeah. Whoops, you're a fish man. It's like, yeah. <laughs> the fight is done. Everyone's just kind of like, congratulates each other, smiles, and then everyone turns to look at the paladin, and the paladin's a fish man. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Cloud spins his buster sword and then turns around, and he's scaly and gross. <laughs> and it's just silence for a second, followed by, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so realistically, this probably will shake out as a hook for another kind of adventure, right? Uh, the hook where, you, oh no, Korgoth the Barbarian is a fish man now, we gotta go find a cure. I think one of my favorite parts, in addition, like, is that it's not just that, oh, they're outside of water, they take this acid damage. You have the option of spritzing them. Yes. Yeah. You can, you you can, can sponge bomb them it. A you can put bit. a bottle, yeah. you can stick a jug of water onto their heads. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just make it so, as long as before the 10 minutes have passed every 10 minutes, just you moisturize them a bit. Yeah. Give them a light rubbing. Yeah. I bet you the bard is down. <laughs> the bar keep have the bard keep the barbarian oiled for the entire ride back home. <laughs> <laughs> the Abolith gets another attack. It's not very interesting. It's their tail whip kind of attack. It does a little bit. It does three points more damage than the super neat tentacle attack, but it has the same reach. It's got the same bonus to attack. The idea is that, and we'll get into this later, it's part of its legendary action economy. So this is just another way for it to get a little bit more damage in. Here's a more neat action. It's got an action called Enslave, the Abolith does. It's got three of these per day, and it can target a single creature within 30 feet. That creature, if it fails on a 14 whiz save, uh, it becomes charmed by the Abolith until the Abolith die, or until one of the two creatures dies, or until there's a planar difference between them. The charmed target is under the Abolith's control, and it can't take reactions, and the Abolith and the target can communicate telepathically over any distance. So, again, this leads into 
the abolith being able to, you know, it leads into kind of the meta structure of the dungeon where the abolith has a creature tarmed. It now mechanically has the wherewithal to create illusions through it of itself from any distance. Yeah. The creature can repeat the save whenever they take damage or get a mile or more away from the abolith. And it can only, it, it makes that save once every 24 hours it's away from the abolith. So it's another way to keep the party chaotic, and it's another way to keep the attention off the abolith. It's another way for the abolith to be tricky, you know? It, it you know, it, it's charm encounter.exe where the creature charms the, the tank, and then the tank is doing its tank job against the party, you know, fuck, we're gonna die. Yeah, or um, the there's a classic type of encounter where you maybe you start walking to a place where you're not supposed to be. The Abolith doesn't want you to be, and suddenly three of the villagers come up to you and start attacking you. Mm. And you're like, oh god, we've got to fight back. But once you start fighting back, you start to realize that maybe they aren't in control of themselves, and that gives you more of a, oh, we can't kill them, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you could definitely take that angle with it, uh, if you feel so inclined. And it, it might be a good way to showcase that the Abolith has that ability early on in the adventure, you know, to to get the the wizard getting their mind blank on. Yeah. And it doesn't say, well, I might be wrong. No. No. Yeah. It doesn't say it has a limit on how many things it can enslave. No, it's just, it, it gets three of them per day. So you can do it animate dead day. style where if you, the you know. The entire town. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I do this three times. I take a nap. I do it another three more times. And then over degrees, you get an entire town of folk. Yeah. So, hey, there's another little adventure hook for you. Yeah, pretty good. The Abolith gets legendary actions, it being a big boss. Uh, it gets Detect, which the allows the Abolith to get another perception check to foil the rogues in the party. So, again, we should mention briefly that, you know, the Abolith has a huge passive perception. By giving it another chance to Detect in this way, you're pretty much keeping all of the the surprise attacks from working. Yeah. It's got a tail swipe. The the Abolith gets a little bit more damage. We covered this. It also... Oh. Yes. Also, I think just like, since this is the first time we're covering them in the show proper. Oh, yeah. Because uh, when I first heard about legendary actions, I was very confused what they meant as well. Yes. Uh, just super quickly, a legendary action is an action that the creature can take at the end of anybody else's turn but its own. And it gets a certain number of them per turn. Yes. It's pretty and much... That a- is- yeah. yeah, it's pretty much D&D's way of covering for fighting one thing and how that is easier than fighting a lot of little things. So in D&D, yeah. it's, it's, it's easier to fight one dragon than it is to fight uh, a battalion of hobgoblins, assuming that, you know, they're all, it all comes out to the same difficulty CR, right? Yeah. Uh, having a, a boss creature have legendary actions allows the boss creature to have a greater... And it, the idea is that it comes down to action economy, where fighting a lot of little things, they're going to get more turns in order to do more damage than one single dragon will. So the idea is that we're going to give our boss creatures legendary actions so they get more chances to do more damage and put down the party so that the sheer uh, probability does not keep our boss from failing. Yeah, it's a very nice mechanic that I'm glad is a thing that exists. Yes. Yeah, I think it's yeah, I I think it's a a good fix. Yes. Anyways, yeah. I just wanted to get that out of the way because I know when I had first heard about legendary actions, I had heard what they do, but I didn't know how to use them or where they went. Yes. Yeah. That's how they that's that's how to use them and where they went. 
Thank you. <laughs> Third legendary action. Uh, this one costs two actions. So of the the Abolith three that it gets, this costs two per turn. It allows the Abolith, it's called Psychic Drain, it allows the Abolith to do psychic damage to a creature charmed by it, and it gets the same amount of HP back that it does the damage. So this is kind of a last-ditch effort to recover lost hit points, since, you know, the idea is that you want your Abolith to have as many psychic slaves on its side as possible. This is what you do when, oh shit, my Abolith is down to 30 HP, I need to get some HP back, I'm gonna do this mm -hmm. at the cost of losing some teammates. Because, you know, when the charm creature takes damage, it can make it save against it. So this is yeah. you choosing HP over, you know, in case you need to get your Abolith out of the way. Or this is like, you know, if as the DM you're playing the creature as you should, which is, you know, the, the creature wants its own survival above anything else, this is your way to showcase that the Abolith is getting nervous, right? Yeah. I actually, um, I don't want to get too uh into this because i feel like i could end up accidentally running forever mm. uh but whenever we talk about these bigger monsters and especially ones with legendary actions i can't help but think how a higher challenge rating fight would go and something i hadn't considered until just now is making a psychic drain main action that can affect all creatures that are linked to it yeah yeah, that would be pretty rough. Uh, essentially turning an Abolith fight into the fight against Darth Malak from Knights oh. of the Republic. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, a giant vacuum. No, uh, I was thinking of a very specific <laughs> no, fucking idiot. I was thinking about a thing that exists. <laughs> giant vacuums don't exist. <laughs> no, I was thinking of an actual fight that, like, uh, I kind of like the uh, idea of it's where a boss is just like, it's got all of these town members kind of held captive in its its thrall. Yeah. Uh, and you start beating the ever-loving crap out of it, but you never actually solved how to free the mind thralls. Yes. You never really helped any of them out. And as kind of a half consequence now, they all take 10 psychic damage and the Avalith regains 100 hit points. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of like that too is, um, you know, I like... I like the, because I'm a big nerd who likes monsters, I <laughs> I like the idea of having to do research on a creature before you go kill it, Witcher style. And oh, I think yeah. that, that would be a good way to reward slash punish the people who do or do not do the research. Yeah, I think there needs to be a little bit more of a uh, punishment to just running so blindly into fighting such a large, imposing, like... Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it comes down to the party that you run. Right. If it's yeah. if, if it's always sunny in D and D land, then nobody's gonna fucking do research. There's no reason to punish them. That's not your game. But if yeah, it's true. you know Witcher World D and D, then it it stands to reason that you should do your homework before you go and fight the the thing that enslaved an entire village. Yeah, your mileage may vary, is what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. On the whole, I I agree with you because I'm that kind of player that thinks that is interesting. But yeah. you know, we don't speak for everyone. That's true. Until we can turn them into our psychic slaves. So that is, for the most part, Abolis. Uh From a lore standpoint, again, they suffer in comparison to Mind Flayers, who happen to, just by the roll of the die, get a more fleshed-out lore that 
again, obviates Abolis for the most part, it, you know. Mechanically, I think that Abolis relies so much on underwater combat that I can see a fight against an Abolith being really frustrating and really not fun very easily. Yeah, yeah uh, for sure. Especially with an armor class of 17. Yeah. I think you can make it fun. Again, like, I think that an encounter where you have your players in control of the water supply of the room might be a fun way to circumvent the frustrations of underwater combat, but I don't see every DM doing that. Yeah, absolutely not. And 90% of D&D parties, I think, even at the challenge rating listed for an Abolith, which is 10, so a party of level 10s, Yes, I think even they, in the Abolith's, like, prime domain of just a small cave filled with water, would feel utterly helpless against it. Yes. Yeah. I think it's really easy to turn this into a a rough fight and not, like, a fun fight. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I like me an aberration. I think the the illusion stuff, the the carrot rather than the stick stuff, as I said, I think that's cool. I like the enslavement, which is not a sentence I need to ever say again. Yeah. No, I think this is a very <laughs> solid way to make a fun Lovecraft dungeon. Uh, it takes yeah. a little bit of tinkering on your fart, uh, on your fart, Orion. <laughs> it takes a little bit of tinkering on your fart, Orion. Good job, Orion. You're going to get a million subscribers, Orion. Well, everybody likes fart jokes. Yeah. No, I think it, you know, it takes a little bit of doing to make the actual fight fun, but I think on the whole, it is a pretty good Lovecraft monster for when you are in the mood for running a Lovecraft-ass adventure. Yeah. So there we go. Those, them's our thoughts on Aboliths. Have you got anything else? Any last, like, how, any last words before I murder you? Uh, tell my wife and kids that uh, you get the PlayStation, cool. even though you murdered me. Yeah, that's exactly what I was hoping for. That's a real <laughs> friend right there who puts you in the will, even though they know you're going to murder them. Yeah, it's never a sudden and inevitable. It's never sudden but inevitable with you. It's always expected. Yeah. I'm waiting. Yeah. Every day I wait. Come on, Orion. Getting tired. <laughs> and that's true friendship, I think, is the takeaway message from this episode. Yeah. So until next time, what's the creature comfort for this one, baby? My creature comfort relating to Abolis is to stay out of wet and slimy caves. Yeah, yeah. Get you a nice space heater so you don't... Oh, man, if you're going into a wet and slimy cave, bring a blanket and a space heater. Yeah, yeah, then it's yeah, then it's good for you. Because humans are creatures as well, lest we forget. And the home of the brave. <laughs> pew, pew, pow, pow. Fireworks. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>